Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 127. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and has called us to engage in the study of this word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. Praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, I have a number of hobbies. One of my hobbies is woodworking. Uh, It comes to me naturally as my father was a cabinet maker and I grew up working uh, in his cabinet shop. But I not only enjoy woodworking, I I really enjoy watching people who are really, really good do woodworking. And uh, so I subscribe to a number of YouTube channels and um, Zach and I were talking this morning about technology and how the, the wonder of being able to record television programs and watch them whenever you want. There, there are a number of woodworking programs. Last night, my wife and I were watching a program called Rough Cut uh, with Tommy Mack, and he had a guest cabinet maker on. And just to watch the techniques and the skill um, and to look at the equipment that they have that I don't, uh, it's just a lot of fun. Well, another hobby is golfing. Uh, I'm a better cabinet maker than I am a golfer. Of course, I've been doing uh, woodworking all my life. I've been golfing for a couple of years. But like woodworking, I enjoy watching uh, really, really good golfers. And uh, I was um, listening to an interview the other day with Bernard Langer. No, Earhart Langer. Earhart Langer. Is it Earhart or Bernard? Who's a golfer out there? Earhart. Bernard. I had it right the first time. Who's Earhart Langer? I don't know. Well, at any rate, um, this fellow, uh, he's won the Masters a couple of times. Uh, He's now playing in the Senior Tour. He's doing remarkably well in the Senior Tour. winning all sorts of things, and the guy, everybody just loves him. And in this interview, he was talking about how he has learned, how he's really enjoying where he is in life, in part because he's learned to find balance in his life. Uh, Balance at work, balance at home, balance at church. He's a very committed uh, Christian it's just an, he's probably about 57. It took him that long, I guess. But I, I, he finally has come to find this thing called balance. 
Uh, balance as, is an important component of, of living. It's so easy for us to get things out of balance. Uh, I enjoy turning stuff on the lathe, and if I ever have to move a piece in the middle of, of making something on the lathe, if it doesn't stay in balance, uh, you got trouble on your hands, if it's not true. And um, so we want to talk this morning in our series on the Psalms of Ascent about Psalm 127, which is really a prayer for balance. It's an interesting psalm. It comes in two paragraphs. If you look in your Bible, you'll probably see that extra white space that we have come to appreciate after verse 2. And that extra white space is a way of the editor or the English translator telling us that there are two paragraphs in this poem. Uh, And that makes sense because notice in verses 1 and 2 the repetitions of unless, unless, uh, in vain, in vain, in vain. Uh, that repetition kind of makes one and two hang together. But then when you shift over to verse three, children, offspring, children, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, the children, they, the children. There's a whole different focus in those last verses. And so we have two paragraphs in this poem, a prayer for balance. And so I have uh, two points that I would like to make. Now, we're not really talking this morning about uh, balancing work and family, that sort of thing, because that's not what this psalm is talking about. Uh, We're really talking about a a theological balance. It's so easy for us to get things out of balance theologically, especially when it comes to the idea of human responsibility on the one hand, and divine sovereignty on the other. Uh, It's so easy to let go and let God, and just think that, well, if God's sovereign, he's going to do it. There's not much that I have to do, or whatever I do is not really important. It doesn't really play a role, because God's doing everything. So we can kind of move to the, the Christian irresponsibility side. On the other hand, we can... We can think so much that it is our responsibility. It all depends on me. It's my work. It's my action that we can get really weighed down with the the responsibilities of life. It's very easy to go to one of those two extremes. It's much more difficult to live in balance to hold these things in such a way like the lady on the scale where we're not this way or this way, but we're really living out life with a balanced understanding of our responsibility and divine sovereignty. And that's really what Psalm 127 is about. I'm going to give you two R words. Uh, The first is recognize and the second is rely. Let's look at that first word, recognize. The first two verses, that first paragraph, what do they teach us? They teach us to recognize the uselessness of self-sufficiency. The uselessness of self-sufficiency. Now, I know that that can sound weird, especially to those of us who are parents, right? Because what do we want our kids to become? We want them to become self-sufficient. Well, no, we really don't want them to become self-sufficient. 
Uh, we want them to no longer be dependent on us, but we don't really want them to be self-sufficient. We want them to be reliant on God, not self-sufficient. See, we do want them to be kind of able to take care of themselves, but here we're talking about something else. We're talking about a, a kind of self-sufficiency that is an extreme. And the, uh, the poem just says, recognize that, that dependence upon self, ultimate dependence upon self, imbalanced dependence upon self is useless. Now let's ask two questions here. Uh, according to this psalm, who is doing the work? Well, we're going to get two answers. On the one hand, the Lord is doing the work. Notice that it says, unless the Lord builds. The Lord's the one who is doing the building. Unless the Lord watches. The Lord is the one who is doing the watching. He's building the house, and this house may be a domestic house, or it might be referring to the building of the house, and that is the temple. Uh, And that's why we have in the title of Solomon. Not certain about that. But at any rate, what is clear is that the Lord is the one who is doing the building. The Lord is the one who is watching over the city. He's the great protector. Who's doing the work? Well, it's obvious the Lord is. Let's ask the question again. Who's doing the work? Well, it's obvious. You are. Notice it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders, not the bystanders. See, it's not as if the Lord is building the house and we as his people are bystanders just watching him work. The text calls us the builders, And if we're the builders, we're the ones who are doing the work, unless you're the foreman. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun right now. My uh, middle son and his wife, they lived with us for a year after they got married while they were saving to get a down payment for a house. And that was a great year. We miss them. Uh, They're now in their own house. And on the back, we're building a pergola. When we first moved to California in 1988... Uh, we bought a house about the same size as Evan and Angela's house. It was like 1,200 square feet. It was a fixer-upper. First thing I had to do as soon as we moved in was put a new roof on the house. It was a fixer-upper. Uh, but we, I, I built a pergola on the front. Will and Evan at that time were probably like five and three, and they were helping me. And uh, so I was doing all of the work, but they'd like bring me the hammer, and they would dig in the dirt and play while I was working. They were helping me. Well, now we're building the uh, pergola for Evan. I'm sitting in the chair saying, I think it needs to be a little bit to the right, guys. Uh, They're the ones, they're doing all of the work. Uh, So I'm building the pergola. I I paid for it. But um, uh, I guess they still are dependent on me in some ways. But um, but they're, they're really doing... They're doing all of the uh, all of the work, and um, also just as a side note, I, I was I was watching uh, them do some of the work yesterday, and it just brought me back to many years ago when my brother bought his first house, and uh, we, my brother and I, and my father put a big back porch on the back of my brother's house, 
And of course, as you know, my father passed away a number of years ago, and I've experienced, you know, becoming the, the generation with my parents gone. And I just thought it was, it was just a very sweet experience yesterday when I realized that years ago, my dad was helping my brother and me put a porch on my brother's house. And now I'm helping my boys, and I'm my dad. I, I am that generation. See, that responsibility now of being kind of the patriarch of the family has fallen uh, to me. And it, it wasn't sad. It wasn't, uh, I, I know, it was just very sweet uh, to experience kind of being in my father's uh, shoes. Well, no, notice not only that we're the builders, we're also the guards. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. See, it's not just that God is watching over the city, and since God is watching over the city, we don't need to do anything. There are human guards who are responsible to take care of of their, their side of this equation that we're looking at. So if we just ask this psalm, the simple question, who's doing the work of building, and who's doing the work of guarding the city? Is it God or is it us? The answer is... Yes. So just, now, again, as I probably have said before, I don't find anywhere in the scriptures where we get a philosophical or theological discussion of how God can be 100% sovereign and we can be 100% responsible. What I find replete throughout the scriptures is in this very simple and subtle way, the Bible just affirming that God is the one who is the builder. And you are the one who is the builder. God is sovereign and we are responsible. So our first question here, uh, who's doing the work, uh, us or the Lord? And the answer is yes. And what's the point, though, that the poet is trying to make here? Well, that's very clear. His point is that self-sufficiency, our, our total and ultimate reliance upon ourselves. That's what I mean. By self-sufficiency, I mean us ultimately and totally relying on ourselves and ourselves alone. The psalmist says that's useless. Uh, Notice in your translation, and it probably doesn't matter what translation you're using this morning, you see a, a threefold repetition of in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. You see, who would go rise really, really up early, stay up really, really late, toil, toil, toil? These are the characteristics of somebody that thinks it depends entirely upon him. I, I can't stop for a moment because if I stop, everything will fall apart. Have you ever felt that uh, or thought that? Um, but to these... Uh, uh, as we'll talk in a moment, he gives sleep. So we have that threefold repetition of um, in vain. We could better translate that word useless. That's what the Hebrew word means, the word is shav. Uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder's labor is useless. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guard's standing watch is useless. It's useless for you to rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat. The point that the psalmist makes is that if we get this thing out of balance, 
the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In particular, if we get it out of balance in thinking it all depends on us, ultimately it depends on us, entirely it depends on us, Futile, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. We're not going to be living out the life that God has called us to because things are out of balance. Uh, Reliance on the Lord is productive, says the psalmist. He refers to those whom he loves. Now, it's not the normal word for love. Um, It's a word that could be, well, it could be translated beloved, but who says that anymore? That's just that we don't speak that way. But it is the word that is used in the Song of Songs. I am my beloved's and he is mine. It's the word that is related to David's name. David as the beloved of God. Uh, To these he grants sleep. He can close his eyes in peace no worry, no fretting, uh, no, no anxiety because all of, of all of the things that have been left undone that could have been done, things that were done but not done as well as they could have been done. Um, as a cabinet maker, hobbyist, my wife will tell you that as soon as I'm finished with a project, there's only one thing I can see. I can see the flaw that's somewhere. And uh, although I'm, I'm making some Christmas presents, and um, uh, I showed one that I made my wife last night, and I said, like, this is as close to flawless as I can get. It was just spot on. Well, there's a flaw in the pergola. Uh, nobody's going to see it, but I know it's there, and I pointed it out, to, and it was a flaw that we, we it, I mean, it can't be fixed. Too much time, too much energy to fix it. I am thankful my father has passed away. Because if, if he were to walk into the backyard, I guarantee you the first thing he would see is the flaw. And he would be sure to point it out to me. But you can sleep. You don't have to live that way. Uh, if you live in balance, a balanced understanding that, yes, You are responsible. You have got to do your very, very best to make it flawless. And God is in absolute control working in and through uh, everything that you do. That is productive. And what it produces in particular is what the poet calls sleep. It produces a, and I don't think he's necessarily just talking about sleeping in the middle of the night. He's talking about the way in which we go about life. Not frantic, not anxious, but there's a tranquility. There's a peacefulness that characterizes us. And it's a peacefulness that can characterize us only when we're living life in balance. So in the first two verses, we get our first R word, recognize. Recognize the uselessness of self-sufficiency. In uh, verses 3, 4, and 5, we get our second R word, rely. Rely on the fruitfulness of divine agency. Rely on the fruitfulness of divine agency. My first point here is really very simple. 
In my translation, and probably in a lot of your translations, we have a repeated reference to children. Uh, if you look at um, uh, verse 3, for example, children are a heritage from the Lord. Verse 4, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are children born in one's youth. The first point I just want to make is here is the children here aren't children. Children are sons. The Hebrew word is banim, and banim means sons. Now, English, you see, has a word for sons, a word for daughters, and a neutral word for children, regardless of whether they are sons or daughters. Hebrew does not. Hebrew has a word for sons, and Hebrew has a word for daughters, but if Hebrew wants to refer to sons and daughters together, it uses the word sons inclusively of the daughters. And so when you're studying the Hebrew Bible, which all of you are doing regularly, I'm sure, and you come across this Hebrew word banim, which can be translated sons or children, see, you can't translate it until you interpret it. Some people say, well, I don't like a translation that interprets. There is no such thing. You have to interpret a text in one language and decide what it means before you can say that same thing in another language. So the interpreter has to say, does Bonim here refer to male sons exclusively or does it refer to sons and daughters? And if you determine that it refers to male sons, you translate it, Sons, if you determine that it refers to sons and daughters together, you translate it children. First you interpret it, then you translate it. Well, that's what the NIV people have done, and that's what the ESV people have done. And they've looked at this text, and they have said, we got the word banim here, but it refers to sons and daughters, and so we're going to use the gender-neutral children in place of sons. Well, in my humble opinion, they've missed it on this one. Children are, are sons here. Uh, in particular, when we get to that last verse, the, 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 the sons, they will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. ESV probably says something like when they contend with their enemy in the gate. The reason why the NIV says court is because the gate is where court was held, and so it was the court. Um, but it wasn't in that ancient culture, it wasn't sons, I mean, it wasn't daughters who were going to go to court and defend their father in court, their aged father, when he was being falsely accused for something. It's the sons who are going to be doing that. That was their job. And that, that's where the man is blessed if he has a bunch of sons who are going to be able to have his back when trial day comes. So in context, these Bonim are not... Uh, children in general, uh, their sons in particular. Now, sons are four things in this psalm. Sons are an inheritance. Notice that the psalmist says, sons are a heritage from the Lord. They're an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is something that you personally haven't worked for. You haven't earned it. You haven't built it. You haven't accrued the wealth. Somebody else has done that. And you are the 
free beneficiary of all of the labor of somebody else. So you see, when it comes to receiving at this particular point, we have to realize that what we receive from God is something that we have no part in. We haven't done anything to earn it. It's been freely given to us. It all comes to us as a gift of a divine, sovereign God. Notice, however, that the psalmist also goes on to say that sons are a reward. Now, this word reward is something else. This word reward is what you get because of what you have done. It's a result of your work. So which is it? What we receive from God, is it because he has given to us this stuff in his sovereignty? Or is it because we have done some kind of work whereby he is rewarding us for what we have done? Just think of Jesus' teaching on... um, on the the gifts that God gives us, the rewards that God gives us. Nobody who gives up this, that, and the other for me in this life will fail to have a hundred times more in this life and even more and more in the life to come. Uh, Jesus says, whoever's faithful in little things will do what? Will be given more. Uh, And so you see, the Bible teaches this kind of reward system. So which is it? Is it that God freely gives us stuff that we haven't done anything for? Or is it that we work and God rewards us? Which one? See, sons are, sons are an inheritance. Sons are a reward to this man. Now, we got to keep in mind that this is a wisdom poem. And wisdom poems intend to teach general truths. They don't They're not intended to make precise theological statements, as you might find, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'll give you an example in English with regard to wisdom literature. Uh, Look before you leap. Is that true? A true proverb? Um, He who hesitates is lost. Is that true? Which one should you do? Should you look before you leap? Act right away. He who hesitates is lost. they're, They're doing, the book of Proverbs does the exact same thing. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, Or you'll become just like him. Which one is true? Well, they're both true in general. But the wise person knows when to apply which one. And so, you see, this psalm is intending to teach us about balance in life. Sons are an inheritance. Sons are a reward. This psalm is not intending to teach us everything that there is to know about the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. For example, I have a hunch that the psalmist isn't at all interested in the question of our eternal salvation and how we get our eternal salvation. Is it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is it based on what we do? 
See, he's not talking about that topic at all. He's talking about walking the general path of life. Remember, these are Psalms for life's journey. And so he's not answering, he's not saying everything that could be said about the relationship between sovereignty and responsibility. He's simply making the point that as you're traveling down the path of life, it is so easy to get things out of balance one way or another. And the fruitful life, the one that produces children, metaphorically speaking, is a life that sees a balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So sons are an inheritance, sons are a reward, sons are a blessing. We've already talked a little bit about this. Most of our translations say something like, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. The ESV is the only translation I have seen that gets this simple point. The ESV says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver. Now, there's, some, there's a difference between is full and fills. This one is kind of passive. This one is active. This guy didn't get a full quiver accidentally. He intentionally filled his quiver. That's the point of the Hebrew text. and The ESV is spot on. See, he's responsible. And whether or not there are quivers, whether or not there are arrows in his quiver, that all depends on God, doesn't it? Because children are an inheritance from the Lord. Whether his quiver is full depends on him. He has filled, actively filled his quiver with arrows. Children are a reward. See, which one is it? This psalm is showing that balance between the two. And that's why they, the, the children, will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies. See, arrows are going to be used defensively. And when the father's falsely accused in court, the sons are going to rally around him like like arrows in a quiver, so he has adequate defense, and he's going to come out on top. What a blessing uh, to have such sons. So sons are an inheritance, sons are a reward, sons are a blessing. Now watch this one. Sons are a synecdoche. Yeah, I thought that would get some of you. Let me spell it for you. This is our, this is our English uh, lesson for the morning. S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E, synecdoche. Uh, my, my son lives in Chuliota, and if any of you ever seen Chuliota spelled, you'd never guess that you'd say Chuliota when you look at it. That's kind of like synecdoche. Well, what's synecdoche? It's just a figure of speech, and it's actually a pretty common figure of speech. Uh, it's a part for the whole. Synecdoche is part for the whole. For example, the captain says, all hands on deck. When the captain shouts, all hands on deck, uh, unless this is like a Johnny Depp movie, he does not expect to see a bunch of hands like coming out from under. What's he, when he says, all hands on deck, what's he want to see? All the sailors. Hand is a synecdoche for sailor because what do sailors work with. Uh, Hebrew calls sailors ropers. One of the, it's not going to be translated that way, 
but one word for sailor in Hebrew is a roper because sailors work with ropes. What, do I, what, what am I saying that sons are, are, are a synecdoche? While the, while the poet is talking about sons, that's part for the whole. He, he's not just exclusively talking in this psalm uh, about sons as an inheritance, as a reward, as a blessing. He, he's not just talking about um, a, a, a husband and wife being fruitful in terms of producing children. He's really talking about fruitfulness in all areas of life. You see, the physical sons is part, but the whole that he's talking about is fruitfulness in every area of life. In the book of Genesis, God blessing people means God empowering people. And God in Genesis empowers people to do all sorts of things, but the two most frequent things God empowers people to do in Genesis is produce children and produce wealth. But producing children and producing wealth aren't the whole of divine blessing. Though that's not an exhaustive list, it's an illustrative list. It's synecdoche, it's part for the whole. And in the same way, when the psalmist is talking about sons or children in this uh, last half of the verse, he's really just using that as an illustration. That when we rely upon God, we will be fruitful in every area of life. Just like somebody relies upon God and they produce a literal son, as we learn to rely upon God, uh, we become more and more fruitful in life through that divine agency. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. And here I'm reading from the ESV. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, interesting that he uses the Greek word that is the same kind of beloved as we have in our psalm, As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who's got to do the work with regard to salvation? You have to. Paul says to you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, how can you do that? For it is God who works in you. Now, in the underlying Greek, we got two different words for work here. But they mean the same thing. You work because God is at work. But now notice Paul goes on to say, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. There's our word again. This work in Greek is the same as the God work. You work because God is at work. God's at work in you so that you can will the right things and so that you can work the right things. Who's doing the work? God is doing the work. You are doing the work. The Bible will not let us fall into any kind of imbalance where we think it's all God. Let go and let God. Nor will the Bible let us get weighed down by the responsibilities of life, it all depends upon me. No, the Bible says you can 
do all of the work that you have to do and the way in which you can do all of the work that you have to do is by believing that God is at work in what you have to do. Again, don't misunderstand that we're talking about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible clearly teaches that multiple places from beginning to end. We're talking about how to walk down that path of life. Well, let me just conclude by saying that it's easy to get stuff out of balance in so many different ways in life. But with regard to the human and the divine, uh, we see that preeminently at Christmas time. Because what happened at Christmas? The divine took on human flesh. The incarnation, God in human flesh. In Christ, we see the, the preeminence of balance between the divine and the human. And in Christ, you have forgiveness for every bit of self-sufficiency that has or does characterize you. Whether it's large or whether it's small, in Christ, you have forgiveness for self-sufficiency. And in Christ, you have everything that is necessary to work, carrying out your responsibilities, and to rely on the fact that it's God who is working in you and it's God who is working through you. May God grant us grace to just walk the path of life in a balanced way, fully taking care of our responsibilities, but not being crushed and weighed down by them as if it ultimately depends upon us. Because as my wife and I have often said, God's 100% sovereign, and we're 100% responsible, but his 100 is bigger than ours. Because after all, he is the infinite God, and we are his finite creatures. So his 100 is infinite, and our 100 is finite. I'm going to quit there, because when you start to talk about God, it gets a little bit tough, doesn't it? There's a mystery to who God is. How that can be, how God's hundred is bigger than our hundred, I'm not sure. But I am sure that that's what the Bible teaches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would write this beautiful psalm on our hearts, that we might not be irresponsible in life as your children, and that we might not be crushed by our responsibilities but that we might work, work hard, work well, work wholeheartedly, knowing all the while that it is you who works in us and that it's you who is working through us for our good, for the good of others, and for your honor and glory now and forevermore. Praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.